out of Egypt from uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now this Sunday after Christmas, we want to continue with a passage that is part of the, the Christmas story. And the text that we read is one that preachers don't talk about much during Christmas season. And, and the reason for that is that we know little about it apart from what we have here. And it also just doesn't seem to flow with the well-known Christmas narrative. We want to keep the theme of joy to the world. The Lord is come and don't really want to talk too much about the struggles behind the joy. But the story is all too real in this messed up world in which we live. It was all too real in the world that Jesus came to. And it will, be, it will continue to be messed up until the day that he returns. He told us that. Now we recall that Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth when the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit took place. And because of the census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus, prompted by God, who prompted the prophet, who obviously told him he had to, told him he had to go to Bethlehem, for the census, they travel to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And because Herod was jealous of his power, he ordered all the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem to be slaughtered. He wanted Jesus dead. An angel warned Joseph and Mary and Jesus to flee to Egypt for safety. They left by night and fled to Egypt and stayed there until Herod was dead. Then they returned to Nazareth where Jesus was raised, where he grew up. And all of this fulfilled the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this prophecy from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 is, is applied to the flight to Egypt by Joseph, Mary and Jesus. It, it is applied to them. And, and at first glance, the, the prophecy doesn't seem to have anything to do with, with Jesus because in its original context, it's about the children of Israel leaving the land of Egypt and making their way eventually to the promised land. And Matthew appears to be saying that just as Israel was called out of Egypt, Jesus was called out of Egypt to return to the promised land so that he might provide deliverance for our sins. Now there are, of course, many questions about this episode in Jesus' life. We don't know where they stayed in Egypt we don't know how long they stayed in Egypt. We don't know how old Jesus was when they returned to make a living back in Nazareth or back in the place that's back in Israel and lived in a place called Nazareth. 
Now these and other questions have given way to much speculation and it's stuff written in extra biblical material obviously but there is nothing all that solid that are available to us. So it's, it's not safe to speak with a lot of conviction from the silence of Scripture because then you're just making stuff up. So we will simply draw lessons and principles from what the Bible tells us rather than what the Bible doesn't tell us. It's a lot safer. And that is something that the Lord allows us to do rather than speculate on that which we don't know and aren't sure about. First of all then, what we do know is that God acts, when God acts, Satan reacts. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Right throughout biblical history, we have the devil opposing God's work at every turn. Ever since God established the beautiful garden in the land of Eden, Satan was out there trying to spoil God's good and perfect handiwork. Since then, whenever God does anything good in this world, the devil puts his demonic spirits into overdrive to try and mess things up. It is obvious that the very coming of Jesus into the world would be an occasion like no other that would prompt him to oppose Jesus at every turn. It's not as if Satan was going to roll out the red carpet, was he? Gee, oh, great. He wanted to destroy him. He came to destroy the work that Jesus was, that he came to do, even to destroy him before he started it. And Herod's murderous attempt to kill Jesus behind Herod is obviously the work of Satan. And Herod's murderous attempt to kill Jesus resulted in the unconscionable slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem. It was indiscriminate. Just kill everybody. Of course, there is nothing original in the, in the way that Satan goes about his work. In, in the Exodus, you would recall that Pharaoh, because the children of Israel were blessed that he ordered that all the baby boys, all the Hebrew boys that were born to be thrown into the Nile. Later on, as Jesus started his ministry, there were all these demonic manifestations in people. Wherever Jesus went, he went and the demons would cry out, Wherever he went, things stirred. Why? Because it was the kingdom of God breaking into enemy territory to destroy the work of the devil. The devil who is on a good thing here, right? He doesn't want to be disturbed. As 
let it be. He doesn't want his business plans to be disturbed. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. This is why we're called redemption. In a similar way, in a similar way, why do you think we find it we find difficult and and opposition as individuals, as families, as a church when we're trying to do God's work? Why is it so difficult? Why is so much opposition? Why do neighbours rise up against our DA? I can understand if we were trying to do something evil. Well, it's because we're trying to do something. We did nothing or simply tried to coexist in this camouflage in the world so nobody noticed. There would be no trouble. But it is because the enemy is not happy with what we are trying to do that we will, I can promise you this, we will continue to encounter opposition. And so will you when you're trying to do God's work. God acts, Satan reacts. But we know who's more powerful, always. Our next point. God allows evil men to rule for a time, verse 14. God allows evil men to rule for a time. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. It is obvious that the sovereign Lord allowed a wicked man like Herod to come to power. And he allows wicked men like Herod to remain in power for a time. He does not always stand in their way and he does not always stop their evil deeds. That causes problems for believers. The psalmist years ago and many Christians today, it presents a problem of trusting a God who allows evildoers to prosper. The prophet Jeremiah asked, why does the way of the wicked prosper? He doesn't have a problem with the way of the wicked coming to nothing. What he struggles with is why does the way of the wicked prosper? The psalmist asks, how long, O Lord? It might be a mystery to us why God permits evil men to continue to do evil, to hurt others in the process apparently unchecked. They're getting away with it, it would seem. Just in the news today, and I think it happened on Christmas Day, northern Nigeria, ISIS beheaded 10 Christians. It was in the video. 10 Christians beheaded in Nigeria. The very place where our brother and sister come from. Elizabeth has a sister ministering, doing mission work in that part of the world. 
However, things are really what they seem to be. No one gets away with evil and sin forever. Herod died eventually and then he would have to face his creator. There is, of course, a road that seems easier and right to man, but the road of evil only leads to death. Behold, your sin will find you out and in the end God's justice will prevail. It will prevail. Be sure of that. Sometimes in this life, but definitely in the next. The message to the son and daughter of God is hang in there. Trust God. He's got this. Thirdly, God's providence includes both challenges and mercies. This is the second part of verse 15. And so was to fill what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And it must be said that the, the, the ways of God, how he does things, really make sense to us in a moment of crisis when things aren't working out. I am sure that both Mary and Joseph would have been wondering about God's plans for a while now. We spoke about this on Christmas Day and Wednesday morning. Firstly, when they had to travel all the way, they had to walk, or by donkey, or by camel, I don't know, uh, all the way, 100 miles, to Bethlehem. Roughly, a pregnant woman, roughly from here to Newcastle, heavily pregnant. And then, not only that, they had no place to stay. No room in the inn. And finally, when they had to take their baby on a difficult journey south across the Sinai Desert to Egypt. Lord, are you sure you're sovereign? Are you sure you got all this worked out? Because nothing seems to be working out here. Why all these difficulties? I thought he was your son. Now we know that Mary... Mary wasn't some ignorant young village girl. She was young, yes. But, but she was a deep thinker who pondered, the Bible says she pondered these things in her heart. She pondered what was doing. Uh, uh, in Luke chapter 2 verse nine, 19 it says that. And, and so I'm sure that all of these difficulties would have raised a few discussions between Mary and Joseph. It's not hard to imagine, right? A whole, lot of, a whole lot of pondering about God's sovereignty. Historically, Egypt has occupied a, a very peculiar position towards Israel and towards God's people. Uh, by that I mean that the relationship between God's people in Egypt can be seen both in a positive and also in, in, most times I would say, in a negative light. It was often 
often the shelter in times of famine for God's people. The patriarchs, for example, Abraham and Isaac, both ended up there or down there. Uh, It was to, to Egypt that Joseph was sold as a slave and then became so powerful that he was only second to Pharaoh himself. And it was, of course, the means by which God would provide for his father Jacob and the brothers and how the tribes, the Israelites, ended up in Egypt in the first place. And that's the place where they would spend the best part of 400 years as slaves. First, it was all great. But then, it was servitude, hard work, hard labour. So they needed Egypt for protection, for provision. And the path that life takes is, is, has many unexpected uh, zigzags, we could say. And we also might find ourselves fleeing to a land of Egypt for safety from time to time in our lives. It's not always negative when you have to go to Egypt. It could be God's way. But one thing is sure, we're never meant to stay there for good. We're never meant to become comfortable there. If this happened, because you see, if the people of God had become comfortable in Egypt after all those hundreds of years, they would have lost their identity as the people of God, as God's chosen people. So God's way of disrupting their comfortable lifestyle was by way of harsh servitude to create a discomfort and to make them through blood, sweat and tears to hope for something more, for something better. So we read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, this is what we read. We read, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites, what happened? They groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, and, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Let me ask you, do you think they would have turned to God if their lives were easy and comfortable, business was good. Of course not. So God would raise up a Moses in his providence even within the rooms of the palace, the best possible education anywhere in the world. He acquired his learning, his leadership skills. Yes, Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt in the great passage through the Red Sea. And we, and again I say this, that by faith 
we might have to go down to Egypt for a time, knowing that one day, by faith, we will come out of Egypt. And both the going and the coming out are part of God's plan for us. And we need to remember that as we prepare for this this new year, this new decade, that this world is also not our home. In many ways, we are living in, in Egypt. This is not the promised land. This is not our home. We are pilgrims. So things are going well for you. Don't get too comfortable. Please don't. Because in any case, God won't allow his children to become too comfortable. It's just not going to happen. If you are his child, get ready for the uncomfortable stuff. And if things have been tough for a while, don't despair. God is still sovereign and he will bring you through. This is where, this is the place, this is the land, this is the country. For many of us who have come from different parts of the world, this is the place where God has provided for many of our needs. But ultimately, this is not our eternal home. As children of God, we find ourselves in the world, but we are called out of the world. Remember that, always. Fourthly, and finally, God is patiently working out his purposes in verses 19 to 20. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Just to give you a bit of background, um, Hosea was the prophet whom God told to go and marry a prostitute. It's not one of, one of the favourite Sunday school stories, but... Uh, Mom, what's a prostitute? Anyway, of course, even after they got married, she continued to be unfaithful and went on to have kids that weren't Hosea's kids. And after all that, God, God told him to go and get her back. Why do all that? Because God, through Hosea, was displaying his love for the people of Israel. Even though they did not love him back, God continued to love his people. And the context of Hosea 11 is God declaring his love for the people of Israel in spite of their sin, in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of their unloving, ungrateful attitude. So we read in, 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 verse, in verses 1 to 4, this is what we read. When Israel was a child, 
I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. That's sad, isn't it? And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Listen to this tender language. Only fathers and grandfathers can understand this. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as the one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Can you, can you hear the, the language, the tenderness? The, 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 it's just dripping in love, isn't it? Parental care. And so when God says, out of Egypt I call my son, this, he's actually looked at the whole nation of Israel as, as his son. And, and it is because God regarded Israel as my son that the phrase stings so deeply. The more they were called, the more they went away. Like the loving father who cannot give up on his own children, the Lord continues to call, continues to reach out to his people. And though the Jews turned away from God and said, we prefer the idols instead, the Lord will obviously discipline them very harshly. But he never utterly cast them away from him. And they paid a very heavy price for their disobedience. And despite this, God never gave up on them. The more I called them, the more they went away. Remember the days, I know, this is not now, but in the past, right? Mum would be out there, Hey, Paul, dinner, come on. And I just kept playing. You don't do that to mum. Because you knew that if uh, mum kept calling and you didn't come, um, there'd be other things waiting for you as well when you got home. (laughs) So that tomorrow, just one call will be enough for you to come to dinner. Who can put their hand up and say that that was their part of their upbringing? Yeah. Kids? Okay. All right. It's called discipline. It's called discipline. Definitely not the way to do it, that the more they called, the more they went away. Not just ignore, but actually go the other way. The kinder God was to them, the more they rebelled. The more they said, we don't need you. Ungrateful, isn't it? And not soon, the thing is that not soon after God delivered them and they crossed the Red Sea, one of the first things they did is they complained. And not only that, they actually wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to Egypt as if they had it so good. And no sooner was Moses up the mountain 
receiving the law for a few weeks, they began to substitute God by making a golden calf. Always looking for a substitute. And in the promised land, they continue to prostitute themselves before the foreign gods, the Baals and the Asherahs and others. Nothing, as a parent, I can tell you that nothing will test your faith like a loved one who not only takes advantage but then rejects your love and concern altogether. It is heartbreaking. What do you do when your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife says, I don't need you in my life? What do you do? Your response when rejected tells a lot about your theology. Tells a lot about how you trust God in the midst of the harshness. This is what God did. If you feel like this, if you know all about unrequited love, you understand God's heart. Congratulations. This is what it's like. And he loved them anyway. He never gave them up. And, and Hosea 11.8 says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And yes, when God brought his people out of Egypt... They failed miserably, repeatedly, yet he loved them. That is why 1,500 years later he brought his perfect son, his one and only son, the virgin-born son from heaven, he called him out of Egypt. The son succeeded where Israel failed. This is God's answer to our failure. I came across, this is not my line by the way, but this is so good. Um, This is a gospel in three sentences, three short statements. God said, do this. We said, we can't. God said, all right, I'll do it for you. All right, think about that. It's not very hard, but it is is a very, (laughs) to the point, isn't it? This is God's response to our sin. It's not as if God is out there in heaven saying, try harder next time. Because of his love for us, he sends his son to Egypt and then calls him out of Egypt as an object lesson for us, as a real lesson for us. Two important truths. The greatness of our sin and the magnificence of his grace. Two things together, which is what the Apostle Paul said in uh, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You think your sin is great? God's love is greater. But please understand that God's kindness, God's calling, God's drawing us to himself is intended to lead us to repentance intended to call all those prodigals and remind them back where home is, where the Father is waiting, out of Egypt and into a greater faith, greater dependence on God. We give thanks for the past, 
for this year, for this past decade, and look forward with fear and trepidation, but tremendous hope of what God will do in the next decade. Amen.